Hi there, this is Eric Markowitz and you're listening to the Nightcrawler podcast. Today I'm speaking with Christopher Sai, the founder and CIO of Sai Capital. Christopher is an investor with more than two decades of experience. He launched his firm, Sai Capital, back in 1997. His strategy, like ours, focuses on taking a long-term perspective on compounding capital. On a personal level, Christopher is one of those investors that I feel a kinship with, both in terms of his approach to investing, but also how he thinks about the market and life in general. Uh, I should add that I think he's an incredibly bright guy and his interests go far beyond finance. Uh, for instance, he's a well-known art collector. And throughout our conversation, I found us talking about everything from art to philosophy, physics, even literature. Uh, it's funny, I think even just listening to Christopher speak should make you a smarter individual. Uh, you can learn more about Christopher and his firm on his website, which I'll link to in the show's notes. Uh, and just as a general note, as always, everything said today is the opinion of both myself uh, and Christopher. Um, and with that, I'm going to bring in Christopher to start the conversation. Christopher, thank you so much for, for being on the show. I'm really happy to be doing this conversation. Uh, maybe if you will, just kind of set the, the table for us. Um, tell our audience a little bit um, about yourself and, and your background. Hey, Eric, it's um, great to be with you here today. And uh, for the listeners who don't know about my past, um, I am Christopher Sai, and I've run Sai Capital, uh, which is based in New York City for the past 25 years or so. Uh, we are long-term investors that focus on um, growth companies and businesses that are at the forefront of change. Uh, we've been investing uh, with this mindset for over two decades, and uh, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a fun ride for us. This is a question I just love to ask all investors, but uh, what, was there like a seminal moment for you that you realized that, that you wanted to do this professionally? Well, I can tell you when I was uh, about 11 years old, I somehow came across Value Line, and I started flipping through it. I was just fascinated. I started rushing home from school and diving into Value Line, just looking at all these different companies. Uh, I, 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 I still have the subscription today, so all these years later. But that was probably my first introduction into investing and then I took a summer job at this firm called Waterhouse Securities. And it was a small little office in the uh, Stamford, Connecticut Mall. I was about 15 years old. It was about 1990. And I worked in the mailroom. I was putting trade con firms in the envelopes for all the trades that were happening throughout the day. But I would finish that sometime around lunch or so. So I'd have the rest of the day, the other four hours, just to watch what was going on in the office. It was really fascinating because the guy I worked for turned out to be uh, the founder's son. So his name was Kevin Waterhouse, um, who I worked for. And Larry Waterhouse started this company, Waterhouse Securities. And they had gone public a while before. But at the time I was there, the stock was just soaring. And I felt like I was part of the action. It was an amazing time to be there, and I think that was another um, experience that really drew me to investing. Yeah. Could I drill in there for a second, and maybe if you can like set the scene, I mean, how old were you, and, and do you have any specific recollections of 
of days or just moments um, of being in that office and, and kind of what made you so excited about just being kind of involved in the market? It was an interesting time. I mean, at least for th that particular stock, WHOO was a symbol. And while I was there that summer, it just started to go on a tear. Uh, people were excited about the discount brokerage business, which was still pretty new. And by that, I meant you could start to buy and sell securities uh, without paying exorbitant commissions. Because I remember the first company I ever bought was a company called NACRI, which was a reinsurance company. And I was also uh, uh, just about 11 years old. Uh, and I paid five, I, I bought five shares at $20 and I sold those five shares at 25. And I thought that was the greatest thing in the world. The problem was the commission on that trade was greater than the profit that I made. So I had to convince the broker to waive the commission. But fast forward just a little bit, you had these discount brokerage firms come out like Waterhouse Securities where you could start to buy and sell at a much uh, more cost, in a much more cost-effective manner. So that was a, an amazing time. And there was so much energy in the room and you could just see the amount of business that they were doing every day was increasing. I mean, they were just, uh, from, from that one office, I could see that they were doing very, very well. And this was uh, something that people were gravitating toward. So I bought the stock as well and felt very much part of the action, even though I was just in the mailroom. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I, I think I'm going to make an assumption here, given that you're, you've been in this industry um, doing this work for over two decades that you love investing. So w what is it about investing that, that you do love? Well, I have to say, I'm like, I'm super excited every morning um, to, to, to go to work. And I think that's a great thing. I love learning something new. Uh, I think that investing naturally uh, allows you to learn something new every day. And I think that the path to becoming a better investor requires one to continuously refine uh, his or her approach. And, and that refinement can actually lead to a better overall quality of life. So investing has these um, benefits, these ancillary benefits that I think few other jobs have. Uh, I'd also have to say that I'm I'm a pretty curious person, and investing suits that personality. the The American poet Walt Whitman said, "Be curious, not judgmental." And I think that ever since I was a kid, I was curious. I was curious about the world around me. I was curious about how things worked. I mean, I used to take my compact computer apart just so I could put it back together again and see what was inside. And today I'm I'm still curious. Uh, I'm excited to figure out how the world is changing and what companies are at the forefront of that change. So these are all things that I love about investing. Yeah, no, I I, I relate to that. I think, like we were talking about a little bit earlier before we started the show. I mean, I I started my career as a reporter, and I think I always got pegged as the writer, you know, because I wrote the stories, but. In my mind, writing was about 2% of the work. I mean, 98% of the work as a 
reporter is really research and talking to people and figuring out, in my case, how companies worked and what their market that they were going after was, what the industry was, how the product worked. Um, I think that th th that's a, a motif that I see across really great investors is not caring so much about the end result as much as they do just the process of learning and the accumulation of, of information and then curating that information in your brain to kind of figure out how to actually make decisions. Um, on that front though, it is an immensely challenging business, right? So what parts of this business, the investment process, um, what do you find most challenging and are there parts of the business that frustrate you? Well, we're all wired a certain way and we're wired that way because of millions of years of evolution. And much of that wiring is, I think, counterproductive to successful investing. For example, fear of missing out. I mean, that's a very strong bias that we all have. And I think that in order to be a successful investor, you have to deal with these challenges, these um, challenges in how we think and how we deal with certain situations. So I think that after more than two decades of investing, I have that under control, but it's still something that is always challenging to deal with because it's such a, um, such a strong bias. I also think that, well, you, you want to, you want to minimize distractions in life. You want to focus on what matters. Um, Marcus Aurelius said, ask yourself at every moment, is this necessary? So I get frustrated when I fail at really controlling the calendar. Time is important, right? So if you're not controlling your calendar, the problem is others will. Um, so that's something else that I get frustrated with when, when too much seeps into the calendar that shouldn't be there. Yeah, I, uh, I get the sense that you're the type of investor that is looking for inspiration in the companies that you choose to invest in. And um, I guess, A, am I correct there? And, and B, if so, what, what inspires you when actually um, digging through a company, um, learning about its product, its mission, its service? Um, what are you, what is your sort of North Star? What are you looking for? At the end of the day, I'm looking for a competitively advantaged business that um, is mispriced by the market. And I love when there are lots of short sellers in a name because there can be great opportunity there. Um, Schopenhauer, I think, said that all truth passes through these three stages. He talks about um, truth first being ridiculed, and then it's violently opposed. And then at the, in the third stage, he says that it's uh, accepted as being self-evident. So I think that it's really interesting when you come across a situation that is either controversial or it has a large short following, because often these are situations that can lead to greater opportunity. Um, we talked about curiosity. I mean, I get inspired about the potential of learning something new. I mean, there's new industries, new companies, new products. Uh, I love new business models. Um, I mean, the world 
and I, and I love businesses that are disrupting the world, that are at the forefront of change, because I think it's so important that one stays not only within one circle of competence, but also expands upon that circle of competence, because the world's moving very quickly. I mean, Buffett was famous for saying that he avoids technology, but I don't think you could do that anymore because technology is extremely disruptive. It's disruptive to traditional businesses. If you don't understand the impact of technology, you may likely find yourself in a business that's going out of business. In 1958, uh, McKinsey did the study and I think it was on the uh, average you know, lifespan of a company in the S&P 500. And McKinsey said that was about 61 years. Well, today it's less than 18 years. So there's tons of disruption going on. And to me, that's really exciting. I want to find these businesses that are leading that change. Uh, yeah, I would... Um... I think that you and I are sort of aligned on that mission and that is what makes this work fun, challenging. Um, I, you know, I've talked about it with Arnie. We, we talk about this, com this concept of, of circle of competence. Um, and historically, I, I just think that we have personally found opportunities in areas that, that are complex. And in so many ways, our, our job as investors and is, is to look for complexity. And I totally agree about this idea of looking for companies that may attract a lot of short interest because you know that there is a divergence of opinions happening. And when there is a divergence of opinions, that's when there can be opportunity. If everything is consensus and it's too easy, then your upside is likely limited. Um, I think that when I think about the that framework of even looking for uh, let's call them sort of divisive types of opportunities. We, we do live in a world that is increasingly throwing information at us at like an accelerating rate per day. And so if, if you think about, you know, a hundred years ago, just how much content people would consume in a single day. I don't know if there's ever been a study of this specifically, but I imagine that it's several orders of magnitude less. And so we were maybe not uh, exposed to nearly the same amount of information, which made the curation of that information somewhat easier, or at least um, more, uh, more possible for the human brain, right? So what are your strategies to filter information in an increasingly noisy world um, where you're, you're bombarded, you know, news, Twitter, um, even podcasts, maybe um, just information coming, flowing to your eyes, your ears. Um, how do you sort of curate that and then pick out the best parts to make decisions? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a great point. I don't I, I don't I don't know either if somebody has done a, a study on how much news we're consuming. The only figure I saw, I think, was by um, I forget his name, but he said something like ten to twenty thousand. Uh, people read 10 to 20,000 news articles a year. I mean, that's insane. And how many of those do we really remember or have changed uh, how we go about life? So I think that the first thing that one has to do is minimize their intake of news. I mean, that's the best filter, minimize the intake of news. 
I mean, I, re- I really, um, I rarely uh, read newspapers or or stream the news because it's just hard to get an edge from what everybody else is reading or listening to. The other problem is that news is uh, super misleading. I mean, it's designed to grab your attention with a catchy headline, but it doesn't really give you that deeper understanding of why something is happening. It gives you that illusion of understanding. So I think that from my standpoint, um, I want to filter out news in general. And by news, I mean newspaper articles, catchy headlines on, 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 on the web. I want to filter those out and devote that time instead to, to reading books, because I think that a lot of insights come from books, uh, not from reading articles. And they don't necessarily come from books in a direct manner, but somehow there's, you read something and you apply it somewhere else, and it might be a few years down the line. And another another way to filter information, because you're talking about filtering not just news, but information, I think, I think um, is to go directly to the source of that information. Lots of people want to read a summary of something. But the first version of that summary will have some edits, right, by the by the reporter. And then that might get picked up. And then so there's a second iteration, which will have some more edits. So reading a summary of something, and, and by the way, Eric, I, I include analyst reports in that category. It can result in a and a really distorted picture of what's really happening. So instead of reading the analyst reports, go to the SEC filings. That's my point. So that's another another way of filtering the intake of information. I think you're you're absolutely right about news. And and the question really was about information. So I'm glad you answered it that way. Um, anecdotally, you know, from my own experience, I've seen how the sausage gets made in news organizations, and it's 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 not pretty. And when there is a uh, viral story or a certain narrative around a company, a political situation, um, the, the emphasis in the newsroom tends to be, well, let's flood the zone. And that would be really to just flood the internet with headlines that are provocative. Um, and let's just concentrate on getting as much out of this story as possible and not necessarily choosing something that may not get as many clicks, but uh, it's really about, I guess, SEO. Ultimately, it's about just the business model. Right, right. um, You know, when you when when you have a business model that's based on advertising, you're you're incentivized to get as many clicks as possible. And so it's not only the perspective of the the stories that are written, it's the the stories that aren't written are a big part of this. so I think that's that's another element that I think about a lot, which is um, what stories aren't being written today uh, that I have to go figure out myself. Um, but you know, so far we've talked a lot about, I guess, let's call it more the um, the qualitative side of investing. I mean, filtering information, research, um, curiosity. Uh, but there's a whole other part of investing in my mind that is really, I'd say, more math based in the sense that it's probabilities and game theory. Um, so how do you sort of think about this idea when you're when you're putting together your portfolio? You only have a limited amount of 
capital, right? And so you have to optimize those decisions to have the best outcome. So how, how do you apply game theory or probability theory when, when you're making decisions? Well, I think the first thing I'd say is that we don't get paid for predicting the future. We, we make money by getting the odds correct. And by that, I mean that you could be totally right about the future and still not make money. That's because the stock market is like a peri-mutual system at a racetrack. So the odds are changing based on what's bet. So the way to deal with that is you have to swing hard, right? As Charlie Munger would say, you, would have, to, you have to swing hard when the odds are in your favor. And when the odds are not in your favor, you just sit on your ass. So that takes a lot of patience, and you have to then counter that action bias, another bias that we have from evolution. It's not easy just to sit still and wait for that right opportunity. But I think that that's one of the ways to approach investing is when, when the probabilities are not on your side, then you, you just don't act. And I think that the, the really big returns, if, if you look at you look at the history of where big returns have been made, they've come from investing in the unknown, the unknowable and the unique, to paraphrase Richard Zackhauser. So you've got to be comfortable in dealing with the unknown, the unknowable, and the unique. And there's an art um, to taking that into consideration and figuring out what that's worth. Certain situations will have what I call optionality. So what's that optionality worth? And ideally, you want a business where you're getting that optionality for free. And you get that in periods where there's maximum pessimism, then you can swing hard when the odds are in your favor. So that's how I think about um, probability and, and how to weight things. We don't, we don't typically take small positions. Um, we own 12, around 12 positions today. So we're, we don't believe in just hitting the bat lightly. We're, we're, we're more interested in waiting for the right opportunity and, and swinging hard. Yeah, I think that there, there is uh, a sort of personality trait that's required to be concentrated as an investor. I think. Absolutely. Have, yeah. I mean, do you want to talk about that a little bit? I mean, just some, some of the, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's, that's totally right. I mean, there's, there's the, there's the intellectual side of investing, but there's the whole behavioral side as well. And that behavioral side, um, reflects back on each investor's individual personality. I mean, to be a successful investor, I think really requires you not to just have an intellectual edge, but to have a behavioral edge. You have to understand yourself. You have to understand your own tolerance for volatility, your threshold for losses, your pain, right? How, how, can you, how, how do you deal with losses? And you also have to understand how other people are making decisions. And then in addition to all of that, you need a client base that is aligned with how you invest. You're a concentrated investor, and there's inherently more, or let's say presumably more volatility in the portfolio because of that concentration. If you don't have the right client base that is aligned 
with that approach, and that approach stems from your own personality, then there's a, there's a problem. So you need that behavioral edge, you need the clients to be aligned with it, and you need an intellectual edge. So to your point earlier, this is not an easy business. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I, I I was speaking with with Arnie recently, and uh, he made a comment, a sort of flippant comment, that he sort of sees himself as an artist. Um, and I think that there is actually a lot of truth to that, in that to be a great investor, um, you you do have to see something. Uh, in something that maybe others aren't seeing just yet. And, and there, there are other sort of similarities, I think, to the work, which is uh, that you may be perceived as a little bit crazy in, in the short term, and you have all of these idiosyncrasies and you set your life up to be kind of singularly focused on, on what it is you love doing. Um, so I'll, you know, I'll let you respond to that, but I also kind of wanted to see, um, I know that you're, you have an interesting kind of perspective. I know that you have an interest in art, um, but I'm wondering, are there other, I guess, um, pieces of culture that are part of your process in terms of what books inspired you or um, are there, is there drama that inspires you and, or art um, and how you see the interplay between, I suppose, investing and, and culture and yourself? Yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned art and uh, I was, I'm friends with Ai Weiwei, who I met about, I don't know, 15 years ago or so. And he's a really interesting guy. Um, he, 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 in many ways, inspires me because he manages to remain true to his vision while at the same time being able to execute upon that vision in a commercially successful manner. And that's not always easy to do. And we're talking about building portfolios where you have a behavioral edge and the clients have to be aligned. Um, so in his world, uh, he is in many ways executing upon a vision and he's doing it successfully. His art's super powerful, I think. And uh, at the moment, the Chinese government is uh, not embracing him. <laughs> <laughs> by any means. But in the past, China has uh, put certain artists aside and called certain artists dissidents only later to embrace them. And I think at some point, China is going to turn and China is going to actually embrace Weiwei instead of thinking about putting him in prison, which they which they did. Um, but he's, a, he's an interesting figure who inspires me because of his ability to have a vision, stay true to that vision, and execute upon that. And that's what I'm trying to do um, with Psy Capital. And in terms of other areas of inspiration, I mean, books certainly, I guess, the person who uh, influences me the most is probably Richard Feynman, uh, the physicist. Um, and he and, and he was a very curious person. So I think that his his way of approaching the world uh, meshes very much with with my personality. He wrote in his book, a book called What Do You Care What Other People Think? He wrote, um, for the wonders I know I'm going to find, maybe not every time, but every once in a while. So he's looking for that. He's looking for those wonders. And I love that. 
because it reflects this underlying curiosity. I, I really love that as well. Um, are, are you an obsessive when it comes to investing? I love asking this question of, of other investors. Um, and, and what do you find yourself thinking about on, on the weekends when you're supposed to be you know, spending oh, time with family? Totally. <laughs> totally and completely obsessive. When I wake up, my first or second thought is usually about a company. And I'm not, I'm not exaggerating in any way. My first or second thought is usually about a company. And what am I thinking about on the weekends is what am I going to do on Monday? Um, I, I, I love the weekends. Uh, I love being with my family and my kids. Um, but I find myself always thinking about companies. So I presume that's what most people would consider to be obsessive. Yeah. Um... I love to read, though. I love to read, and that's a distraction. I mean, we were talking about other inspiration fiction i mean, i i definitely turn to fiction for inspiration um but it's inspiration it, it just, within the it context. just as an outlet <laughs> right it's it's funny though i i do the same where i think i'm i'm doing something well this is not <laughs> investing but then i'm always searching for you know hidden ideas or or just new frameworks to think about investing by you know reading a, a crime novel or something <laughs> uh i'm i'm definitely well it's funny you say that it, it, it totally, I, and it's funny you say that because I'm also looking for the for these ideas of as, as well from from fiction, and sometimes I think I get the wrong idea. For example, <laughs> I read a book uh, re- recently called Independent People by um, Halder Locksness, and I'm not sure that I really got the lesson that the author intended his readers to get from the book. But what it did do for me is it reinforced the importance of what the late Joseph Tussman said. And he said, he was a Caltech professor, and he said, what the pupil must learn if he learns anything at all is that the world will do most of the work for you, provided you cooperate with it by identifying how it really works and aligning with those realities. I think it's a powerful statement. And the main character in independent people lived completely at odds with how the world worked. And he wound up with a pretty miserable life. But that's 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 the point I took from the book. And I'm not sure that that's the point the author wanted me to take from the book. Um, all right, winding down here. This is going to be the last question. Um, what's your end goal here? Um, what are you trying to create with with with, with the firm? And, and what makes you proud of, of what you've created so far? Well, I don't take myself too seriously. You know, I, I think life is pretty short and I'm fortunate to have had a pretty full life thus far. I have two amazing daughters. I have the most wonderful and supporting husband. And I'm sure that without him, that, that Psy Capital's record would not be where it is today because he always pushes me to be better and better in business and better as a person. But my long-term vision is just to continue to improve, to improve our processes, to improve our performance, while never losing the joy that I'm getting from discovering those new investments, helping other people achieve their goals. Um, You asked me about, what was it, about being proud? Well, I'm I'm proud about getting to work with an aligned group of investors, uh, a group that's excited to be invested in competitively advantaged businesses that are at the forefront of change 
and I'm really proud that I've earned their trust. It's fun for me to go to work and to work for our investors, most of whom are very close friends of mine. I love that answer. I think that's a, a great place to end. And and on a personal level, I I think we get asked this question as investors, well, what's your edge? Uh, in a very non-cheesy way, I do believe it comes down to the partners you choose to invest with you. Um, if, if you have partners that are misaligned, you'll never succeed. Um, because especially in a concentrated strategy that, <laughs> that's going after companies where there's a lot of short interest, there's a lot of um, you know, maybe misinformation, um, you need to kind of find the right people to, to work with. Um, but Christopher, I have to say, Absolutely. I, really love, I really love this conversation. I'm, I'm so glad we got to do this. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm so impressed by sort of your, your thoughtfulness to all of this work. Um, it's pretty rare, if I'm being honest. I mean, I, I think you probably speak with people um, across the spectrum in finance. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of, um, I don't know, uh, sharky people, just, just people who are in this for, you know, kind of the, the glory and the, and the money of it. But um, it's, it's really nice to meet people who I think are kind of intellectually motivated by the work and um, just super curious. So I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that we got to meet and do this. Um, and, I, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Oh, I love the questions. Thank you, Eric. And somebody said to me recently, uh, a much a much more seasoned uh, investment manager than I than I am. He's probably in his mid seventies now. He said, "Don't worry about money. You do a good job. Um, everything follows over time." And I think that it was a great example of the benefits of compounding, yeah. not not just compounding money. But compounding knowledge, you compound your knowledge, um, try to minimize mistakes, follow this. Uh, there's, a, there's a Japanese concept called Kaizen, which means continuous improvement over time leads to um, big, big, uh, big improvements. Um, that's that's really what it comes down to. Awesome. Well, Christopher, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Um, for the audience members who want to learn more, I'll put a link to Christopher's website in the show notes. Um, but again, Christopher, thank you so much for coming on. I love the conversation and uh, we'll have to have you back soon. Bye. Disclosures. This has been prepared for information purposes only. This information is confidential and for the use of the intended recipients only. It may not be reproduced, redistributed, or copied in whole or in part for any purpose without the prior written consent of Worm Capital. The opinions expressed herein are those of Worm Capital and are subject to change without notice. This is not an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase any fund managed by Worm Capital. Such an offer will be made only by an offering memorandum, a copy of which is available to qualifying potential investors upon request. This material is not financial advice or an offer to sell any product. Worm Capital reserves the right to modify its current investment strategies and techniques based on changing market dynamics or client needs. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Returns are presented net of investment advisory fees and include the reinvestment of all income. Worm Capital Management LLC is an independent investment advisor registered under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940 as amended. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. More information about Worm Capital, including our investment strategies and objectives, can be found in our ADV Part 2, which is available upon request.